0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this Tuesday afternoon. At the moment, with two of my three esteemed colleagues and longtime collaborators. Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow are in here at the moment. Audie Weiner will be. Some combination of us are here every week, every week, but the bye week we took a few weeks ago. We don't take many bye weeks, but a little caveat because we say we're every week and we weren't that week. It was our 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 off week. We were traveling. But we're here now. We're in, and it is peak sports. College football is heating up, NFL is heating up, and goodness gracious, major league baseball is heating up. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. How are you both doing?
2: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm probably uh, a little bit less uh, enthralled by playoff baseball than Eric, but probably also correspondingly a little less stressed out about it. So, uh, so yeah. yeah
1: how's, how's your Tuesday, Eric? Anything going on for you today? Any, well, I mean, world? obviously the...
3: Yeah, now the the big Yankee game five coming on this afternoon. It's, you know, it's one of those, you know, you say, well, it's not that big a game. No, it's actually a very big game. I mean, the Yankees have. Who says, so who says
2: game? elimination games aren't big games? No, I mean, no, it's no, no, no. Like, but I'm
3: talking, I'm just also talking about the greater context, which no. means, you know, the Yankees, again, I know Shane says I selectively picked these years, but the Yankees have won one title in the last 22 or 23 years since 2001. The 2000 was the last title. And, um, you know, this team has the potential. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a tough game this afternoon. Uh, Cleveland's a good team. It, it should be an int- interesting
2: Yeah, I know. And I, I mean, I guess the baseball world has to choose between uh, wanting like, you know, uh, a 60, 70-year playoff like world series start to end or this poor team potentially go from 27 to 28 championships
1: (laughs) tough decision for the universe tough
3: yeah tough tough, tough position decision for the rest of the baseball universe it's also you know it is a you know i think a 60 million payroll team versus a 240 million dollar payroll team so there's interesting stuff there i think both i've heard I think the Guardians are at least as analytically savvy as the Yankees, maybe more so um, in a large number of ways um and also you know, there is the storyline of the we all know who the manager is of the Cleveland Guardians the old, our old nemesis Tito Francona so you <laughs> you, you add on that yeah um, you add on that wrinkle as well and so it's a big game for the Yankees, and of course, the Phillies are playing tonight in game one, which is you know. Yeah, if there's any year where I'm gonna, if I ever say that it's not a coin flipping model in baseball, Shane, you slap me around and remind me of this year because the Padres are the sixth seed and the Phillies yeah. are the seven. The one, two, three, four, and five are all out in the National League. Six mm-hmm. is hosting the NLCS, and that to me is just remarkable. And, and I do think I it, walk, real quickly.
1: Is yeah. it also the case that those two teams finished? like 19, 20, 22 games behind the division winners that they knocked out who they, knocked I, I out think it's, the, I NLCS. think it's the
2: weekend, like for an NLCS, it's got to be the lowest, I think, combined win total for two teams. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm remembering, misremembering like something from a white whale well, a while back, but. But I well, think it's interesting because we were talking a few weeks ago about whether this buy. You know, well, you know, this is the first time we've kind of had this buy concept. I mentioned the possibility that
3: these teams that had built some momentum had Mm -hmm. already won games. The other teams hadn't played for eight or nine days. I'm not saying, look, N equals two, three. We can't say. No, I mean, we're
2: not going to be able to differentiate that from the coin flip model for many, many years, potentially. But it is an interesting kind of dynamic that, of course. If you believe in the coin flip model, then you want the buy, obviously, because it's one less series that the coin flip can kind of flip against you. But to the extent that you believe in momentum, or or that you know you sort of see these results as evidence that you can get kind of cold over that kind of buy time, you know.
3: Or Shane, let me let me say the following. Let me let me ask you a a conditional probability question. Mm -hmm. Conditional on the Phillies and Padres winning the first round, which they did. Would you rather them just have landed against their opponent or have won a first round and landed against the same opponent? I mean, that's the momentum question is that uh, you could I could see. I I think you'd
2: almost have to cut it. You know, baseball is so fascinatingly complex because, you know, if I say, you no, it's rat. You'd rather kind of go into the series having just one one, you know. But then how did you win it? Did it go to like a game seven where you, or game five or a game three where you had to like blow through your entire like pitching staff? Because, th- you know, teams can kind of hobble into the next round as well. I mean, and we can come up with historical stories one way or the other. I mean, I talk, uh, you know, I, you know, when we were talking about the bye a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the 2008 World Series where the Colorado Rockies had won something like 15 of 16 and going into the, no, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 2007, sorry, not 2008. Colorado Rockies had gone into the World Series, haven't been on an insane run, but then they finished, they won their, they swept their NLCS and sat around for like an extra week waiting for the Red Sox to join them in that World Series. And they look, they look cool. I mean, they, you know, they w- didn't seem to be the same team.
3: We have the same, you know, we have a very interesting thing here happening with yesterday's rainout. Obviously the uh, Yankees and the Guardians are playing today. The Astros series starts tomorrow, and right. I think there's – I don't know if there's – maybe there's one day off in the entire series, but they're going to be playing a massive number of consecutive days in a row, the Yankees or the uh, Guardians. Um, the advantage you – and know, I was listening to Sports Talk right this morning. Did the Who did the day off help? I would say the following. It helped the Yankees, I think, the most because their relievers got some rest. But even then, you think about it, um, Garrett Cole – now moves up a day Mm -hmm. in his potential pitches if the Yankees were to advance. So now, instead of having to pitch maybe game four, he's maybe a game two or three starter. So now he can pitch games two and three or games six and seven. So I think it's a huge difference for the Yankees. And, of course, you have Nestor Cortez. But the
2: counter-argument, of course, is that if this game goes, you know, if if this is a close game today, and they have to run through a lot of their best bullpen guys, those guys may not yeah. be available for the first game of the Astros series if they're starting again tomorrow. So, I mean, I, I think I, – I mean, I totally agree with what you said. I just think, you know, baseball is, you know, uh, an amazingly complex enough game with a lot of different moving parts and kind of like, you know, kind of almost counteracting kind of uh, things happening that, you know, it really could go either Hard way as an know. advantage
1: or right, disadvantage. right, right. So I want, to, I want to just note a, a moment about Saturday. We'll, we'll get to college football, and, and people are saying – they said ahead of time that it was one of the great Saturday slates that we've seen so in years. And they mm-hmm. say after the fact, that might have been one of the greatest Saturdays full stop that we've had. But simultaneously, in, in, parallel, right. in parallel to what was going on in college football, baseball was having yeah. one of the most extraordinary days. And I woke up Sunday morning to a column from Grant Brisby – he writes for the Athletic. He's a San Francisco-based guy, at least he's Giants-based guy. So our buddy Joe Simmons is occasionally sends me a Brisby column, and I it always makes my day when he sends me a Brisby column. Do y'all read this man? We could have a podcast where you just read Grant Brisby columns. That I think would be doing a service to the world. I'm gonna say I'm gonna read you an extended quote. Okay, bear with me. It's like a paragraph, a quote from Brisby's column. Saturday night, after the Phils advance, the Padres advance, the Astros advance, and the Guardians went up two-one. On the, on the Yankees. This is what Brisby writes. He says, he, remember, he's, kind of, he's a Giants guy. He says, it is my firmest belief that the Dodgers are a dynasty. This is a heretical take and very bad for my personal brand. But part of my job is to think about the Dodgers every day. And I've come to the conclusion that they're one of the most impressive operations in the history of professional sports. They lost two aces and they're still winning 11, 111 games. Man, even 101 wins wouldn't have changed my mind. But baseball don't care. Baseball is free jazz with alto saxophones shrunking and screeching over a 7 4 beat. And we're all dorks in powdered wigs trying to make sense of it like it's Mozart. Maybe we should just let those cats play. That's Brisby on the Dodgers getting knocked out by the Padres. That's Brisby on that Saturday. In which so many incredible things happen,
2: yeah, uh, no, and I mean, I kind of feel like it's almost lost in the shuffle of everything that's been going on, perhaps because it was kind of the least competitive series overall that we had like an eighteen inning playoff game, one of the longest games in playoff
3: history <laughs> Not like that, Shane,
2: and it's like kind of a, it's a footnote because it's you know it was the last game of a
3: sweep, so it, you it was know, also I, I a zero, think... it was also a zero to zero score, yeah, yeah,
1: so i i think I think it was our our friend Bill Connolly who led his early in his. Recap football column about the weekend. He said, "After this incredible Saturday, I think it might, I might be giving Conley credit." Where it was somebody else he said, "While some people were watching six-hour baseball games without scores, <laughs> a very different experience." So, Shane, let me
3: just ask you before we move off of baseball, because we'll have to, we have lots of sports to catch up on. How much? Let's assume it doesn't matter. Maybe it matters. Let's say the Yankees win today. We don't know that. Let's say the Yankees win. What probability are you giving the Astros, who have to be the favorite? What probability are you giving the Astros to win the World Series? How much above twenty five percent would you go up to beyond thirty? No, I'm not sure I'd go beyond twenty five. Like I, I, I mean,
2: <laughs> I see no reason to say anything but twenty five percent.
1: It changed brand. Bradley. Should I, yeah, on, should man. I do
2: the five thirty eight in and jump them up to like you know sixty percent or something like that? I mean, notice the Dodgers with their thirty seven percent chance to win the World Series that didn't work out. No, it's coin flips. It's co- I, I, I again, I um. I'll, I'll, con- I'll, I'll concede. I mean, it's not like team quality doesn't matter at all. No, no, no. But but let me but just like say,
3: you have to believe. 26, 27 percent. Wait, you don't put anything. Wait, wait, You don't put the American League winner. Let's say it's the Yankees for a second. They come to beat the Guardians. Both the Yankees and the Astros won, let's say, between roughly a hundred, roughly around 100 games. The Phillies and the Padres won 80 something games. You mm-hmm. don't put the Yankees or the Astros 60, 40 in the World Series. Both those,
2: both those NL teams have beaten 100 win teams in like this last past weekend. So no, I mean maybe a little bit because it is a little bit of a, you know. I mean,
1: well, okay, Shane, you know the, the
2: seven game series that the World yeah. Series will be is yeah. a little less coin flippy than the five game series that they just won. So
1: right.
2: I'll concede that point. Uh, but let's say I would not give the AL team, whoever they are, more than like uh, 55 to 45.
3: Okay, and so then, then well, if you see, think Eric, the next so, round is 50-50, that puts it at most 27-28. Yeah. yeah, exactly. exactly. I
1: mean, we were talking Sims last week, and it strikes me that may- maybe you just need the hierarchical – you need to add a level of uncertainty to really understand how coin-flippy these things are. Because mm-hmm. we say, we say, yeah, the Yanks and the Astros won 100, and the Pods and the Phil's 188 88 or whatever – but Really, the strength you're going to get in the world series is going to be a draw from that distribution. The you know, the observed mean over 160 games happens to be 100, but yep. what there are now, there's going to be a distribution, and we're going to get something for a seven game series. I mean, that power ranking might not be 162. It so, you brought
3: prob- it's an interesting point, uh, Kay, that you bring up first. There's so many forms of uncertainty, there's the you know. All right, 88. There's a distribution around their true strength, the same like there is around the team that won a hundred games. Then you've got the short series. So there's another level of randomness entered there. And so, and then there's just the inherent randomness in baseball games and even one single game of baseball. So just adding up all those uncertainties, I agree with you, puts a very, you know, flat distribution on things. Well, Um,
1: in one, in one particular form of uncertainty here, it just feels like baseball teams are pretty non-stationary and over the course of a season, certainly. So that one, that, that one loss record for the season is just not representative of what you're getting. Well, not just that.
3: Do you care? I mean, I make this up. Do you care how many games the Yankees or the Astros beat the Tigers? I mean, in some sense, maybe also forget all the other things you mentioned, which I agree with, Maybe we should just look at their record against playoff teams or winning teams. And I have, I have a look at that. But maybe the Astros and the, the Phillies and the Padres aren't that much different. Like this disparity of 20 games. Yeah, no, And I'm looking maybe forward maybe it's to it's not.
2: I'm looking forward to in future seasons, there being more kind of head to head like that, like teams outside the division will play more head to head games with each other and that the schedules will be balanced a little bit more as well. So I think we'll be able to kind of, you know, cause I think schedule disparity is, is, or, you know, kind of divisional disparity is part of what makes these kind of like, you can't sort of say like, Oh, well, you know, the Phillies, sure. They were only like an 88, win team or whatever, but they were in like a, you know, a buzzsaw of a division this year. But Shane, so let me ask you a question. Like maybe in, comp- maybe in like, another division, they would have been a 95-win team.
3: So let me ask you just quickly, Shane, and we talk about uh, tournament design all the time here on Morton Moneyball, and I don't, don't think we've ever talked about this. Let's imagine there was a more balanced schedule. Just like in pro football, conference record's not the first tiebreaker. It's head-to-head. Let's mm-hmm. imagine the Phillies had played the Astros. Let's say it's the Phillies and the Astros in the World Series. I'm just making that up. Maybe the Phillies and the Astros, if they play seven or eight games against each other, maybe we should use head-to-head to determine who gets home field in the World Series, not the conference record. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's an argument for me. I, I, I mean, I think home field in, in baseball is relatively minor compared to con- – I, I think that – that advantage is relatively minor even in a series compared to like, you know, what home field confers and and, and football and stuff like that. I mean, I mean, certainly I think your proposal is an upgrade over who won the all-star game or whatever (laughs) we were doing for a long time there. Right. I mean, yes, I'll I'll take, I'll take anything based on the actual team's performance, but whether we can just use like win totals, like whether head to head needs to necessarily would be like the, because I, I mean, NL versus AL, they're only going to play like one series against. How you, about we you know? do
3: it on a Elo strength rating?
1: <laughs> not gonna work no i mean, I, say, I, that's, I that's mean a, no i'm no, just saying i'm, I'm being I don't, I'm not, I don't want it i don't want it i don't want it
2: i mean if the i mean if the schedules are more balanced, if the schedules are perfectly balanced we could just i mean there'd be no controversy to just no, use. No, but you don't record. need
3: balance to use the elo rating
2: but you why well, use the elo rating versus their actual results unless there's a severe imbalance or something like that you're trying to correct i mean i, know,
3: I, I don't know that's what i'm trying to correct
2: but there isn't – I mean, I am I'm, I just think in the future there's not going to be as serious of an imbalance. I mean, you still will get – the schedules will not be perfectly balanced, but I think just using – I mean, I have no actual problem with kind of the playoff structure as currently configured in Major League Baseball. I might I, – I would maybe argue that we could chop a few games off the regular season – and at you know like make these kind of three and five game series, actual seven game, you know maybe. Oh, extend like the, the a
1: bit. This is, I mean, I think this you like is the. Ra- ra- I mean, two- I kind of like the randomness. I love that team's pretty, not involved.
3: <laughs> I like it being a series at the better teams, like a series at yeah. the better
1: teams.
2: Yeah, yeah. Park. I mean, so I mean, that's not a yeah. That's I love not, that. That's not a strong hey, quibble.
1: Before we move off of baseball, tell me a little bit about the Phillies Padres series, and it's, I'm I'm inclined to believe that the Padres had a little something extra out for the Dodgers. Yes. Um, yes. Um, but so what does it look like? Do, do, the, do the home team have a chance against these guys? I mean, what, what's your sense of who has the real advantage? There's the odds. I, I they think look like the favorite. You know, I, I think, a huge
3: favorite. you Yeah, know, I'll go back to what won the Red Sox, the World Series. I'll get back, go back to what uh, I'm thinking against the Yankees. I'll go uh, when they play them in the ALCS. I'll give them what won the Diamondbacks. If you have Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. You're going to win a lot of series. If they can pitch as great as they can, if you have Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, and they pitch as great as they can, the I'm not saying they're, and by the way, I'm yeah, not saying know I mean saying, but, you know, I Schilling mean, and Randy Johnson, who are two. Yeah. Uh, or are, are they really
2: even, like, discernibly better than you, Darvish, and Joe Musgrove, and, you know, kind of the. The, the big two or something you could put together. No,
3: I would say, I would say the following. They're as good as any pitchers they will be facing. Yeah. So I was going to, yeah. I wasn't going to say they're better. I'm saying no. The Phillies have a right. chance in every series they face because of Wheeler and Nola. That's it. Yeah. It, and I think this,
2: this, the, the nice thing about maybe this series, because there is like, I think no natural on paper, huge advantage or disadvantage for either of the two teams. Uh, I mean, obviously the, I mean, if there was an advantage that I think might come into play, if I had to kind of make a non-coin flip prediction, um, the Padres bullpen showed just how amazing they are against the Dodgers. And I do think the Phillies aren't necessarily quite as confident in their bullpen, but whether the the actual results match that prediction, I mean, again, I I, I defer mostly to it. It's probably going to just come down to a, a few kind of big coin flip moments.
1: Let's get a, let's get a pulse check with Eric. Uh, the first pitch is about 45 minutes away. <laughs> how are you doing over there? I'm how are you feeling? An hour and 40,
3: an 45, hour 45 away?
1: away. Oh, we're an hour and 45 away. All right. So you're not, you're not too flinched up yet. Is no, I mean, you know, um,
3: this is a, I'm always interested to see who comes up big in the huge moments. I mean, I remember, you know, Punch and Judy Bucky Dent's home run. Uh, I remember Aaron Boone. I remember Scott Brocious. I mean, these aren't Hall of Famers. These are all role players. Mm-hmm. Could be Harrison Bader today. It could be who knows it could yeah, be. Yeah, I mean it it may you know, not I mean, be it. Yeah, it may not be Aaron Judge or Stanton or LeMayhew or any of these guys. It's just hard to know and that's what I'm always interested to see what happens. Um but yeah, I'm I'm very nervous about the series. But also, I'm I'm not looking to face the Astros. I mean, obviously, the Yankees have not fared well against the Astros, and so. Um, but let's just get through today. But I'm I'm optimistic. I, I I think the Yankees. Well, the Yankees are minus 170 right now. So you know that puts them at about a 60 percent, at least 62, 63 percent to win the game. And I think that's fairly accurate. I think that's about
1: right. Okay. Yeah, I right.
2: might shrink it down closer to. 50. but but i mean i i do think the yankees should be favored they're at home and you know they they are at least certainly uh have been a better team on their elo power ranking or whatever you want to kind of call uh however you want to measure it um i mean i i'm i'm obviously in addition to not just not liking to see the yankees succeed i'm a little bit more intrigued by a guardians astro series just because i i do think the yankee yankees versus astros i mean i guess you guys would probably appreciate the rematch but uh but I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind seeing the Guardians go through. But I, I do think, I, I think it's slightly more likely that the Yankees get through.
1: Let me give regardless, it's going to
2: be a really compelling matchup.
1: Let me give you a couple of non analytics um, Martian, Martian baseball fan observations. So this is the person who watches baseball when you know, like once a year, essentially. Two things. One. The production quality on playoff baseball is just extraordinary, especially these night games. I don't know how many cameras they have on these games and they, all the different angles that they have, but it is just spectacular. I don't know that any sport competes with just the heads-up, like production quality, the angles they're giving us. They get the fan; the fans are like right there, like right behind the players. You get their faces. I mean, the just the spectacle of it is is really something.
3: Also, talking had, to the people, they're talking to the players in the dugout.
1: Well, i i I think that's a little weird. I like the I like the mic'd up guys on the field this year. That was fun, but I don't I don't like it when they talk to guys like the coaches. That make the coaches talk to mid, mid game. Okay, second thing though, man the the watching guys feel the ball. Like th- there was a play by the guardian second baseman when Judge ran out that infield single. Then he, then he got knocked around on Rizzo's barely in, in fly. So he ran out that infield single, the second base one, the play he made. So he made a great play, got the ball over there, pulled the guy off the bag. But that play, just that second base one, to his, to his left, deep in the hole, slid, popped up, threw it over. I mean, that's, that's baseball at its best to me. Like, I, could, I could watch that stuff all day long. It's just wonderful. And for, from what little baseball I've seen over the last week or two, the defense has been great. I mean, the guys, you're seeing teams that are actually quite solid, and they're, they're doing a lot of fun things on the Anyway, those are my Martian observations from the past week of watching base, watching playoff baseball for the first time in a while. All right, guys, why don't we hit the pause there? We've talked about baseball. We've got a lot of football to talk about. We're going to have Audie Weiner fly in here momentarily. He's going to be sad to have missed the baseball conversation, but he's going to be able to pitch in. His Jets put in quite the performance this weekend. All right, that's been Q1. We got three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius X- XM. Rolling into the second quarter, Audi Weiner joined us right as we wrapped up Q1. Delighted to have him in. He's sporting New York headgear. And he's in a different place. You're not in New York by chance, are you? What is this? What is this place?
0: I'm actually in New York. and I'm in my sister's apartment in Brooklyn.
1: Oh my God. this you're the, going to the game?
0: I am not going to the game. I wish I were. Um, it sounds like an amazing uh, adventure to be able to run over there. But uh, today is uh, off the table for a variety of reasons. Oh yes, yes,
1: <laughs> yes. Got it. Right. Okay. Very good. Well, glad you could make it in for this. Um, we've talked baseball. So you're, you're you're gonna you're you're going to suffer the the absence of baseball conversation, but for one question, we've been taking Eric's temperature for the last half hour, and we want to take yours. How are you holding up in the in the in the in the wind up to the big game?
0: Well, I, I was very disappointing. Um, you know, I invest all season in the Yankees. Just it's part of my relaxing relaxation. I walk my dog. I listen to the game. I I try to catch almost every part of every game. And so the playoffs, which as Shane is happy to tell everyone, is almost an inevitability for the Yankees. Um, you get there and to just play badly in the playoff is just so unbearably disappointing. And yeah. Saturday night's loss was was terrifying. I mean, you, you, the, the analytics, you know, Tom Tango is out there saying this is all random. Do not try to point fingers at you know, X, Y and Z. And unfortunately, fortunately, he's probably right. But nevertheless, the the fan in me and and wants to say. I, I mean, I, as also the manager to me, I was I wouldn't have done what 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 Boone would uh, would have done. Would my my has been better? I don't know. But I know that I disagreed with what he did, and it was
1: infuriating. Now we have to a little baseball. What are you talking about?
0: <laughs> well, he brought in uh, Schmidt, this uh, very young, completely inexperienced um kid with a with a big curveball to close the game when he had homes in the in in the bullpen rating also has extremely short leech on pitchers who throw 100 101 Lysica Peralta and he pulled them out after two batters in the seventh and eighth and he just didn't look at the whole game in its entirety and we got stuck with a guy who hung a curveball and, and I mean, Cleveland. I mean, it's
2: it's funny because Boone. Boone I, I was almost infuriated on your behalf. Boone after the game was asked about why he didn't bring Holmes, and he's like, "Oh well, Holmes was only available for like in a in an absolute emergency." It's like what what, 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 what emergency situation that was the I mean what what I do mean, you define as an emergency situation if not if the kind not of it. end of that particular game? <laughs> that said, not to defend him because you know I I, I support you. The next day when Cole Hamels like came out after seven, Holmes was Derek there Cole. just shut it down. Yeah. Derek Cole. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's you right. know, okay. the best
0: the, the best line I think was was when Holmes said, uh, my arm was in great shape, I was toyed ready to go. And 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 the, the comment was the only thing Holmes did was throw his manager under the bus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are th- that that's that game is gonna is gonna go live in about an hour and a half from when we're when we're taping. We're gonna lose the the Yankees fans among us as we tape our interviews later this afternoon. And uh, we'll be pulling for you in spirit. If, if not, in fact, guys,
2: <laughs> I mean, I'll mean, i be calling for your guys kind of happiness in a grander sense, but definitely. Yeah, exactly. I, against I, the I Yankees. wish,
1: I wish for you well-being and happiness in life. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the other sport that just crushed it on Saturday. And that is college football. People knew going in that it was one of the best slates we'd seen in years. We had, three matchups of undefeated midseason undefeated matchups, which we don't see very often. And those things lived up to their billing. And then other games lived up beyond that as well. So w- any, any reactions or any observations coming away from Saturday's slate in college football?
3: Well, just two quickly. One is, um, and I'm, you know, everybody knows here. I'm not an Alabama fan. Alabama finally got what they deserved. They should have <laughs> lost to Texas. They could have lost to what uh, is it? Texas A&M. Um, And uh, they did lose to Tennessee. And uh, that was the first reaction. And the second reaction is, as the husband of a Penn Stater, boy, Michigan's good. How about that? Yeah, Michigan's a good team. And that, you know, I understand Penn State's not an elite team, but the way they beat Penn State shows that, you know, they're on the right track. And you can't tell me they're not competitive potentially against any team in the nation right now. Those are the two things that stuck out to me is that Alabama got what they deserved and Michigan is better than I thought they were.
1: Well, so the theme, the theme there is that it's not just when it's how you win. It's not just losing. It's how you, lose. like you can, there's a theme in in Alabama this year and they're barely squeaking by, barely squeaking by, and then they lost. People are, people are asking, you know, is, are they still going to make it to the SEC final? Is this just a blip? Well, I think Eric's raising the question of with that kind of pattern, maybe they're going, to, they're going to have trouble even getting back to the final. And then Michigan's on the other side of that. Michigan's just hammering. They've been hammering all this weak competition. Now they're hammering strong competition. No, but here's – there's, there's, there's information. Yeah, there's information again.
3: Yeah, I think your point, Kate, is Al- we well, you know Alabama's at least a one-loss team. So what have they done right now that puts them at the moment – that far ahead of other one-loss teams. Yeah, so yeah. why should Alabama necessarily be the one-loss team? Now, if they go into the SEC Championship game and they throttle Georgia, then then they've done something that gets them into the playoffs. And that's well, the, the they, argument well, Eric, well,
1: the argument even as a even without going to advanced stats is to say um, well, look, they've been just kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So they they've had the two highest games of penalties in Saban's career against uh, against Texas and against Tennessee. Fifteen against Texas, seventeen against Tennessee. Now you might say, look, that's 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 on them, right? And they, and you have more penalties when you play good teams and all that. Yes, yes, yes. But then there's turnovers against A and M. That game should not have been as close as it was. They just kept on handing the ball over. They didn't have Bryce Young in that game. So you can make an argument that. Alabama's been basically not hitting on all cylinders, and when we see them on all cylinders, we'll we'll believe that they're back. Shane, So or I'm so.
0: Sorry. so uh, yeah, I'm curious to you know what what does a uh, Massey Peabody make of Alabama right now? What does that analytics, hard analytics, data driven forecaster do with the priors? Which is, of course they start the season with Alabama on top and lose one game. Um, a good team. Tennessee's a real good team, right? Yeah. So what do you, what are you saying? What, what, is, what is what is the historical data say about updating on Alabama?
1: Well, so what I, what I don't have is some some years we play with like um, no prior models, essentially. And they're not quite no prior models because you need that to kind of make things make sense. But you, you put priors on the opponents, but not on them. and We call them a hybrid model. It gives us a nice view of in-season only. I don't have that today. But as you point out, you don't need it because Alabama is pretty much where they were to start the season. We had them – Real close to we had them number one to start the season, which some people thought uh, we thought it was kind of crazy, but we had them you know, plus 30 plus 32 and they're sitting there plus 32 right now. We have them still in that triumvirate still with Ohio state and Georgia. And I can tell you, I've, I just, I'm just looking at the numbers today for the first time I watched the game last night. I was teaching during the game on Saturday. I come out, I come out to the 44, 49, 49 score with two seconds left. Um, But I finally watched it last night. And I, it's hard for me to believe that, Alabama didn't win that game. I don't know how you have the ball on the other team's 30 with 20 seconds or 30 seconds left. 30 seconds left, maybe they had. Yeah. Uh, And (laughs) tie game. And you lose without going to overtime? You got to work to do that. I mean, one, you got to not advance the ball, not use it any more time. You got to miss the field goal. And then the other team has to go 40 yards in 16 seconds. And then they have to hit a long field. And a lot, everything has to go wrong for you to lose that game. And that's just the, the last 30 seconds. Maybe Char-
2: The Chargers be able to pull that off easily every every time in an NFL
3: game. Maybe, Cade, what you're saying is that, and it's, it's a fair point that Matt, our producer, put in the chat, which is, you know, before we talked about the demise of Alabama, they did lose to the number six team on the road in a game they potentially could have won or should have won in the last minute. So let's not make it seem like they lost to Appalachian State. You know they lost to the number six team that's un- now number three or whatever undefeated. So I will say, just on paper, to me it's more of they gave up fifty something points. And so mm-hmm. imagine a team that has a dominant physical. Like imagine they play Georgia or they play Ohio State. If the defense plays like that, and those mm-hmm. two teams have a better defense by far than Tennessee, then mm-hmm. I see a problem for Alabama.
1: I don't disagree, but I'm 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 so wowed by Bryce Young. I have a hard time believing he couldn't carry the team against almost anybody. At least keep them competitive. But as much as the you know that was the game of the day, obviously. But you know Tennessee emerges as really Tennessee and Michigan both emerge as the next tier teams. And we've been talking about that tier all year because you have the Big Three, and then we've had kind of this morass of teams below that. This was a weekend where Tennessee and Michigan really emerged clearly as that next tier. You might put TCU. People don't quite believe in TCU yet, but they are undefeated in the Big 12. They had a big win against Oklahoma State, double overtime win. People are beginning to buy TCU, but that's not the Tennessee-Michigan level tier. And So we really have, I think, this. And people, I mean, Clemson, this is the thing about the way the college football season is shaping up. It's yet another year where Clemson's not going to have enough of a schedule to prove itself one way or the other. They might find their way into the playoff without really doing anything very impressive. This is the shame of the thing. And so you got to throw Clemson into that tier. So you've got this Tennessee, Michigan, Clemson tier after the big three. And that just looks like a stronger tier now than it did at the start of the season. In fact, you know, if if all six of those teams were in the final, in some kind of six team tournament at the end of the year, it's not, I mean, what odds would you give one of those three teams to win the whole thing? It's entirely possible.
3: So not just last week's games, but I think I put in the rundown. There are some exciting games this week too. I mean, Clemson, Syracuse, a good game. Oregon, UCLA, Oklahoma State, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi State's not a trivial game. TCU, yeah, Kansas great. State,
1: that's right. That's it's, right. It's that's another
3: right. slate of. I just listed a half a dozen really interesting, important games.
1: I'm with you, Eric. I think this is an unusually interesting year. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a sucker for college football in general, but this is a year where. Yes, we've got a big three, but we've just got this whole raft of teams below that. They're interesting. We haven't quite made sense of whether they're how good they are. I mean, Oregon is Oregon back after they got slacked by Georgia in year one. Are they are they that great a team? Well, we're going to find something. UCLA has been has been like, underperforming UCLA, for
3: years. UCLA beats Oregon. Is there any reason we couldn't consider at the moment UCLA in a tier
1: two? I think um, only because of priors. I mean if you think about what we're saying about Tennessee and Michigan, we thought they were that tier. They just kind of slowly proved it. And UCLA, we didn't think. You know, now they're just they're just getting into that level of consideration at the moment. And and people are going to be out, the jury's gonna be out on the pac twelve until proven otherwise. And you know, they've got some good teams out there, but whenever you know the Oregons and the Utahs do what they've done in the beginning of the year and lose games to SEC then you're going to stay kind of dubious about the Pac-12. But UCLA, undefeated. They could be the very good team. Um, they'll have more chances in the future. They could, they've got the big game with USC, of course. They'll have a Pac-12 championship. They might have another U- Utah game. Who knows? So UCLA, I mean, it's in the mix for sure. They're in the mix.
3: Obviously, they have to run the table to have a chance. But if they run the table, it's going to be hard to keep them out versus a one-loss team. Given well, what,
1: what if what if USC runs the table and they're a one-loss Pac-12 champion after beating UCLA? Um, say they beat uh, Oregon. Say they beat Utah. They get a revenge game against Utah in the Pac-12 final. So you could make a case for a one-loss USC Pac-12 champion. Who are you going to take over them? I guess undefeated Clemson, who's beaten nobody but Wake Forest. Yes,
3: yes. I, guess. I wouldn't, but yes, that they will. An undefeated Clemson would absolutely go over a one-loss. UCLA. Well, we've
1: got lots of interesting possibilities because, I mean, the Michigan-Ohio State loser is going to lose the Big Ten East, but be one of the best teams in the country. That The SEC, the Georgia-Tennessee. I know,
3: loser. but you know what the committee is going to say? You study this. They didn't win their conference. The Michigan, unfortunately, not based on power rankings, not based on Massey Peabody or anything else, the loser of the Michigan-Ohio State game, I I, I think they're out.
1: Well, I, I'm 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 a fan of giving conference titles that much weight. I I, I wish it was really that clean, but I as much lip service as is paid to that. I don't think that's necessarily as big a factor as they say. I, mean, I think power rankings end up like just the quality of the team ends up mattering a great deal. This is a year where we're going to start really missing that 12 team playoff. We're gonna, this is a year where it's going to be. I mean, look, we're still have a you know, five weeks to go. So who knows, but it's shaping up as a year in most of the years that we've had, there hasn't been that much controversy in the end. And this is a year where there might be, might be four teams with a legitimate claim to that fourth spot or six teams with a claim to the last two spots. It's it's that interesting a year on the college football side. And Eric, you're right. This is a a fun weekend. We're going to pick up college football more in Q3. We've got a guest out of PFF pro football focus. Who's got college football nailed. So we'll pick that up again in a few minutes. Let's talk pro football. Adi, your jets, your <laughs> jets, man. I mean, big, big, big impressive win against the Packers. People are excited about the jets for the first time in a while. Is this legit? Are we serious? Should we be thinking about them. What's going on?
0: I'm certainly thinking about them. I'm just still in shock. I mean, I don't know, you know, what, what changed? I mean, this is, this is always funny and they have these big draft picks because they're always crap. Um, but uh, why, why this year? I mean, this is a mystery to me. Is it? it I mean, they've had a uh, Wilson has been playing well, but so are they. Who, is, who played before? I mean, I don't, you know he, he was. I mean, both the Jets and Giants go in there. Th-
2: yeah. appear to be benefiting from actual competent coaching. Right. That's a, that's a. Bad yeah, how, do we, how
0: do we know that? How do how do we assess that? I mean, what, when I'm looking at a game, what are we seeing that's saying ah, good coaching?
2: Well, I mean, you know, with the Giants part with Brian Dable, I mean, it's like you know. I, I mean, it's pretty much an outcome-based – I mean, A, you can sort of see whether players actually do seem to enjoy or play hard for certain coaches, but just outcome-based. The Giants have already matched their win total from last year.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, well, outcome-based, of course, but isn't that, isn't that doing well, the thinking
1: oppositely? Yeah, I would go the other direction and say priors. I, mean, I don't know enough about coaching, to, especially with a team that I'm not watching week in, week out. But Dable, everyone just thought the world of on the way in. It seemed like a great hire. Um the jets coach i've been mispronouncing i just i don't
2: know how much i mean again For, for coaches for for people doing their first head coaching gigs i'm not sure how much the you know people get jazzed. people are super jazzed about nathaniel hackett for the broncos too i mean you know we thought the broncos were going to be this amazing team i i i guess i don't know
1: that's right. fair. I think that's all fair. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think mean, fans get yeah.
3: excited about a first
2: time. I think coach. you have
3: to I think if you're the I
1: think
2: sometimes it the works Jets, out, sometimes it
3: doesn't I think if you're a Jet fan, you have to temper it a little bit. Look, there's no question winning at the Packers was a huge win in the way they won the game. And that shows, in my view, the Jets are at least a decent team. But let's be clear, they lost by over they lost by over two touchdowns to the Ravens to start the season. They beat the Browns. That ain't worth much. They lost to the Bengals by two touchdowns. They beat the Steelers, which is worth something. They beat a very weakened Dolphins team. But you're right. They beat the Dolphins and they beat the Packers. So to me, that says they're not the horrible Jets that Adi and I. Yeah, made.
2: and, I, and, I, and it's, it's so interesting to me, again, you know, almost like as, as somewhat of a humbling experience from our preseason expectations. We were all talking. I mean, the whole world was talking about how the AFC West was going to be this the strongest division we've ever seen in football. The AFC East is obviously a much better division right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the AFC you know, East is the best division in football.
1: So hold on, hold on. Before we go, before, yeah. I, I want to do that. And that, I think that's a great point. But before we leave, I just want to say one more thing about this coaching thing, because Adi's calling us out on on how we really know these things. And and I'm going to go another thing with, with what we observe. And we have these heuristics and that is these guys are both, I would say kind of next generation coaches. They're both a little more analytics forward They're They, they talk about the game in the way that we, you know, the Twitterati want them to talk about it essentially. And that is in direct contrast, at least to the giants head coach that who seemed to be just really from the 1970s in this whole philosophy. It's one of the reasons people have gotten so skeptical on Pete Carroll. It's just almost a defiance against any change in the game as opposed to the way Sala talks about this and the way Dable talks about things. In fact, there was this great article in The Athletic in the last couple of days about one of the assistant coaches for the Jets, who's their game manager, like a situational game manager. So this is increasingly a position, a position that people, that teams have. Um, and the way they have used this, kind of a Carnegie Mellon guy, you know, he played, what is that? Like some division three football player, Carnegie Mellon, but, 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 sophisticated guy, sharp guy. He's been working his tail off in the league for years as in various kind of assistant roles. And now he's in this very helpful, like assistant to the head coach, situational game manager role. And they think it gives them an advantage, a real advantage against other teams in, in those critical moments. So Dan Smash is his name. They call him Smash. Interesting piece in The Athletic on him.
0: So what, just to follow up on these, these questions here, you know, we're very quick when baseball to decide it's all randomness. And and seems like in football is exactly the other side. We're very quick to say uh, no randomness. It's coaching. It's uh, good. You know, we misunderstood. But if I look at the the I was I, if I look back at what we thought about so many teams that are doing really well this year at the beginning of the season before the season started, this is a lot. Is is, is in your estimation? Do we seen a lot more movement than we typically see? I mean, the Jets, the Giants were supposed to be bad. Uh, Eagles mediocre. Um, the Bills are right where we thought they would be. But uh, who else? I mean. I mean I did
2: I mean I thought the Eagles were going to win the division. I mean I, I don't think they're going to go undefeated or anything like that. I mean well yes, I mean there have been I guess you you're asking if there's been more surprises as a whole, is, is there more
3: surprises this year than normal? I think the same you know the numbers Shane you and know, I've looked at this historically Don't, isn't it roughly fifty percent of the previous year's playoff teams make the playoffs again? I yeah. think the three disappointing teams on the from the that were good last year that are not playing as well right now. I think Tampa you'd have to put in that list, you'd have to put the Rams in that list, you'd have to put the Bengals in that list green Bay I'd, I'd say though what who else green Bay Green Bay and Green Bay those four teams you know. Would it shock me if they don't make the playoffs? No. I mean, all all four of those teams are no locks.
1: Adi's asking an an empirical question. Maybe midseason we could run a formal review and, uh, and compare, like, change in our understanding of a team in the first half of the season versus historical seasons. Um, how volatile that's been. I share your intuition that this is a higher than usual year, but I don't. I don't trust my intuition, but I definitely share your intuition that that's. I
0: I I don't even trust my intuition. I'm just looking at the Jets. I mean, and the Giants, and (laughs) the people in New York see these two teams, and then you throw in the Eagles. They were expected to be good, but not as good as they are now. Um, is this just and I, I i'm I'm just tempted my my, my inner uh, stats tingling sense um, is saying don't over don't overgo over I think you're uh,
1: I think yeah, you're
2: 100
1: no. percent right and you're exactly right to call us out on it and we call out others on it and then we fall prey mm-hmm. to it ourselves. I was just thinking today that we're overreacting left and right in college football. We are too convinced that Tennessee is one of the best four teams in the country. I mean, they had a really good game, but they they've looked good. They had a great game against Alabama. They're gonna shit the bed before the season's over. That's what happens with teams. We don't understand how much variance this intra individual intra team variance there is. Eric talks about this and in, this is like the this is like the Vanguard or maybe not the Vanguard but the, this is consumer behavior, marketing analytics is like we're we're no longer trying to categorize everybody we're talking about how much they shift around within themselves this is the same with sports We've, we think that they just have one mode and so when we see these outcomes we too quickly assume that's the mode but in fact, there's a distribution, and in college football especially, there's a wide distribution, and that means that we overreact left.
3: The other thing left. is that if, if you just think about a four-and-two team versus a three-and-three three team, one te- if you just do the stupid thing, one team is projected to have eight or nine wins, the other one 11 or 12. Oh, my God, you're four-and-two. Oh, my God, you're three-and-three. Three. Yeah, well – you know one missed field goal, one stupid play, and then and and,
2: and six games in the strength of schedule, like yeah, is yeah, so yeah. desperate, disparate among teams. And that's what yes. really, I mean. And in college football, it never corrects that's you go right. the whole season, and it's like that's still right. still, still right. like that at the end of the season. But at least in the NFL, that does start to kind of correct Big you, time. know, it does, it, does average out a little bit.
1: It's one of the m- principal factors behind regression to the mean in NFL schedules yeah. because they get it pretty balanced over the course of the year. But midseason, it is way out of whack.
2: And I mean, the Eagles, especially. Like I think this is one of the reasons. I, even though they do very much look good in the games I've watched them, I'm skeptical. I mean, honestly, they're not going to hit very many good teams until the playoffs. Frankly, Correct. they've got
3: they've got a easy. They've got the softest schedule I've ever seen. No, 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 no. Shane, let me list the next full six uh, uh, teams for the Giants: the Jaguars, the Seahawks, the Texans, the Lions. The Cowboys and the Commanders, Seahawks and Cowboys, are good teams.
1: They're Aren't okay. the Jags okay? Isn't like my boy yeah, Trevor Jacks Lawrence? Are okay. They're, they're okay. Trevor yeah, I mean, I mean, Lawrence is good. I'm saying they're those okay. six. Teams. They're okay. They're okay. Exactly. No, six. I mean, well, I
2: mean, that's but, a week
3: six teams that they're well
2: okay. for the next six. You know, and for the first, I mean, again, I could, you know, we could go through who the Eagles have actually beat. I think the Cowboys are the first decent team to have actually lost. To oh, they
0: beat the Vikings, and they beat the Vikings.
2: Yeah,
1: decent, okay. decent, okay. decent. All right. it's, yeah. it's all, but it's There's all, no worry, you know, I
0: mean, I mean, I think what another thing we're
2: sort of seeing is also that it's it's pretty wide open in the NFC. There are no yeah. truly dominant teams this year, at least certainly yet. Um, whereas, you know, in the AFC, you've got these two teams that are obviously I mean, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to talk yourself into anything but an AFC championship game being KC versus Buffalo. But
1: yeah, let let me let me give you some not quick numbers. I was really Surprised to see how much Buffalo is separated in, in our rankings, just the Mass C P better rankings. We have Buffalo plus 9.3, with the next highest being plus six and some plus fives. Now plus and, six has got to be Kansas City, right? Well, we have Tampa Bay there, actually. And we have Dallas with Prescott back. We have Dallas up there, then KC right there with Dallas. Mm-hmm. You know, Buffalo okay. just went into KC and one. And so, you know, if that was on point, if that was an accurate read, then that would make them more than three points better than KC. Um, man, it was must have been satisfying to to get that win. Yeah. Being,
2: it's a great game too. Season. I mean, honestly, those, yeah, watch, no watch those two teams go at it. I mean, I think it's you know it's it's both Allen Mahomes when they're kind of on, they're basically unstoppable.
3: So the, it's the big, it's the big implication, of course, of that game is that now with the Bills five and one and the and the uh, Chiefs four and two, they literally have a, a, equivalently a two game lead, yeah. and that's exactly. huge on that's these on the
1: game. teams, yeah. which yeah. means
3: you know. Especially you see Massey Peabody has three points, Buffalo better, maybe even than three or four than KC. Now you give home field edge to Buffalo in that game. Right. Now they're right. six or seven point favorite. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're a 60, 65% probability to win that game, at right. least according to the spread. So I mean, that game was a big game.
2: Yeah.
3: No, I mean, the buy is extra. That one, the fact that the only one oh, gets the buy is, is never mind. I'd forgotten about the buy. Yeah. How about that being important?
1: So that yeah, I'd forgotten about that too, Eric, geez, exactly. Yeah. That's one more reason for that game. Um, I, I just think, I hate to say this again, Shane will be with me there. Sports gives us some, you know, they get the, they give us these pure moments. Life tends to be pretty complicated, but sports can be pure and I can pull for the Buffalo bills just out of interest for the folks who live in Buffalo. And have it suffered as much as they have, that's a story you can get by, by the way, I feel the same way about the Cleveland guardians, but I think even more about the bills. It's a fun, it's well, a fun story.
0: I'll throw out
1: there out there, they happen to be the only New York, actual New York team. <laughs> That's true. That's a, They're in New York yeah. State. This is a good point. Okay, guys, before we wrap up this quarter, let's talk about a sport whose season is just starting. We're talking about the end of baseball, the middle of football, and the very beginning of basketball. The kick the season kicks off tonight. We've basketball, got a couple I'm of incredible it. games. The Warriors are getting their rings out there in San Francisco tonight, host in the in the face of the Lakers. How much fun will it be for them to get that hardware? in the face of the Lakers. And over here on the East Coast, the Celtics and Sixers, I think, are the other game. So the NBA really does a nice job at teeing up these games. Any thoughts going into the 2022-2023 NBA season?
3: I think to me it's just I'm surprised the Celtics are the favorite uh, to win the title. Give Um, us the odds. Well, they're at plus 595. The Warriors are second at plus 615. Then you have the Clippers the Bucs, the Nets, the Suns, then the Sixers come. But, you know, to me, there's five or six teams in the East that are all very strong. I think their Bucks are strong, the Sixers are strong, the Nets are strong, the Celtics are strong. You know, the Heat are strong, the Hawks aren't bad. So, I mean, it, the, just getting out of the East is going to be brutal. And also, Golden State won the title. And remember, they they had two number one draft picks that were injured and didn't play, and they've got another player back. I I don't see how the Warriors aren't stronger than they were this year. So I don't see the Celtics being the favorite. I don't see it at all.
1: Well, to be fair, plus plus 595 is not a whole lot different than plus 615. Um, But your basic argument is, look, the East is so strong. And aren't the Warriors better? Because the Warriors are basically banking on the big three, maintaining that level of play. And then the younger guys stepping up, you know, it takes, it seems like it takes a while for these younger guys to contribute. And they've got this, they've interestingly got this tier of younger talent. I don't, you know, all right, how much additional contribution will those guys make, but you got to, things have to hit just right. You know, I mean, the Warriors got in there, the, you know, did the, did the best team come out of it? Uh, it's
3: not even, remember, time? just quickly, it's not even just the big three anymore. They have Andrew Wiggins, not a bad player. They have James Weissman, who was the overall number one pick in the draft, who was injured last year. He's now back. Jordan Poole is a very improving player. So all I'm commenting on is they have two people, top players didn't even play last year, that are now back. So I, every argument is they're a better well, team we, than last year. and they we, won the,
1: the Bucks had a major injury in the past season. Number two guy was out for the Middleton. Playoffs. They still took. They still took the Celtics to the distance to they That's why
3: I'm not as convinced the Celtics should be the, the favorite.
1: So that, of course, the Sixers. There's a big piece in the Ringer this week on Daryl Morey, and can he ever get over the hump? Poor Daryl revolutionizes the game. Everyone, everyone in our camp loves Daryl, but he's never gotten it done. We need these guys to win some championships, just for rhetorical ability, of nothing else. Come on, man! Is he going to get it? Your boys, Eric, season ticket holder, is Embiid enough to carry that team?
3: No, he's <laughs> not. No, no. For them to win the title, Harden's got to play like play well. Tyrese Max, he has to play well, and of course, the all the X factor is always Tobias Harris. So we have talent, but no, Embiid is not enough by himself.
1: All right, man. Well, it's going to be fun to it's going to be fun to see unfold beginning tonight. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the second half now. Q3. When we have a second interview, we often drop it into Q3, and that's what we're going to do this week. I'm joined this quarter by Shane. We lost our two Yankee co-hosts. They're out. What are they doing, Shane, again? What's going on right now?
2: Tuesday. Oh, They may be a little distracted by that big game going on right now.
1: First pitch was about 15 minutes ago, and we will not be hearing from them for a while. Um, that's fine. That's fine. We can do these things without them. In fact, we're delighted to be here and have a chance to talk to our guests this quarter, Anthony Tresh. Anthony is Pro Football Focus's Lead College Football Analyst. We often hear from folks on the pro side of things from PFF. We don't often hear from the college side. We thought it'd be interesting. We love PFF. We're always talking about PFF. We don't know enough about college, what they're doing on the college side. So, and Anthony is the guy, lead football guy, lead college football guy there. He's been there since 19. They poached him out of grad school. They're good at things like that. Anthony, good to see you. Welcome to the show.
4: Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Excited to talk college football. I think it's, um, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's the best sport in the world, college football. I love it. It's just the passion around it. It's, uh, It's awesome to see.
1: I'm with you. I'm so with you. In fact, I've had thoughts exactly like that in the last 24 hours. I watched some NFL this weekend. I watched some baseball this weekend. They're both fine. They're fine. I enjoy them even. But, man, you can't beat what happened on Saturday. I put it up against anything. Are you kidding me? There's no beating that.
2: And, and if, call, and, and if uh, baseball this past weekend and NFL this past weekend can't beat college, I, don't, <laughs> I I think there's no hope at that
5: point.
1: <laughs> well, I'm with you, Anthony. I'm biased. I understand I'm biased. Listen, man, before we get going, give us a little bit of your background. How did you end up? We say that PFF poached you out of grad school. How'd they find you? Why'd they find you? What were they looking for when they got you?
4: Yeah, you know, I was actually, so I was in college, uh, went to Indiana, I was up at the uh, Indianapolis campus. And. Honestly, I got on Twitter one day, it was during lunch between classes and I saw PFF was hiring data collectors. So I said, what the heck, I'll I'll go ahead and apply. I need a side job and um, went through the process and uh, ended up getting hired for part-time data collection and eventually worked my way into uh, kind of building some preview packets for kind of the the B2B side, whether it be team clients or you know the broadcast channel. And that's a division right now we're really excited about. Um, And then eventually I actually ran into some of you might know Steve Palazzolo, a um, sure. massive human being, six foot 10, ran into him at a hotel in Indianapolis, um, big crowd, but it was easy to spot him. And, yeah. you know, he, he'd heard of me and we sat down and talked and he's like, Hey, we're actually hiring, you know, people in the Cincinnati office. So I was like, okay. So we talked with him a little bit and, you know, he convinced me to uh, take a job with PFF at the time. And um, right when I graduated with my bachelor's degree. So I was planning on going to grad school. I had some of a grad degree completed, and kind of just like, "Well, I guess I'll drop out of grad school and go to Cincinnati, Ohio, work for PFF." So um, that, that's kind of how it all transpired. A lot to it, um, the right place at the right time, as I like to say.
1: It's funny we get little Palazzolo stories here and there. We we had him on the show a number of years ago. He was on for one of our Super Bowl shows in person, which adds adds flavor to the Palazzolo experience to get him in person. And we just hear little stories. He's a little connector it seems to a lot of the PFF things that happen. Um, We know also that you worked some with Eric Eager, longtime friend of the show, Eric Eager, um, who just left PFF in in an industry shaking move, but he's the head of research there for a long time. I'm sure he was helpful to you. You had a nice note to him when he made his announcement for leaving. Anthony, tell us a little bit about what PFF's college football practice looks like. So when I think about it, what do I think about I think about the scout ratings you guys do. I mean, I think about scout ratings, the ratings, player ratings you guys do. I'm sure you've got services that you provide to teams and increasingly so. There's 130, however many plus FBS teams and growing. Um, I'm sure you've got some retail stuff. I know that the pro side is really kind of pushed on the retail side. Maybe Maybe you're involved with that. How do you think about the college football portfolio at PFF?
4: Yeah, well, first off, got to give a shout out to Eric. I mean, I'm so excited for him. I mean, he is genuinely probably the, one of the best human beings, but also the smartest human beings I've ever talked to. And I talk to him still regularly. I'm happy for him and his family. He's a big reason why I'm here today. But awesome. as, far as, as far as the college game goes, um, I think what kind of infatuates me is just, you know, the whole schematic aspect of it. Because, I mean, you see unique stuff in the NFL, but in the college landscape, I mean, it's different. Right. And I've actually talked with some NFL teams and some of them hate it. And it's like, you know, I can't get a good read on this quarterback because he's getting his hand held all the time. And it's just like, well, just look at the I mean, just enjoy the offense by design. How did they get there? You know, just kind of ignore it. I get their concerns with can they come into an offense, the NFL level and succeed. But that's kind of the thing that really infatuates me with it. But also just the the, the subtle differences. That I don't think a lot of people think about just the the importance of a position and you know seeing these young players too also just start out come in doesn't matter if they're a five star or a three star you know, just seeing them kind of develop over the course of their career become uh-huh. you know relatively unknowns to superstars that's what really kind of gets me pumped up about college football and just from what we do here at pff it's a lot of the same stuff you know as far as you know, collecting data and some of the services that we do offer um, it's the same at the nfl and collegiate level we have all 32 nfl teams as clients we have think just about every single FBS program now um, as a client. So, you know, from when I started, it's, um, it's been 180 on the college front and a lot That's of mean, give us, stuff there.
1: Give us a sense of what you're providing when you have an FBS team as a client. What does that mean? What, what do you do for them?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I think like the main package here and some people have heard of it, PFF Ultimate, which is, it still is a jaw-dropping resource to me every day. I've lived in this thing. I've lived in this thing for four years now. It's a big database where if you could think of pretty much any metric you could possibly think of um, the filters there for it, and you can filter that down so if you want to see you know how is this team faring when they're playing drop eight coverage and it's third down you know what's their metrics and you can get any metric you could possibly think of or you want to look at a quarterback you know you know facing uh, a six man pressure and third down and you can also tie in the data with the film and we pair up the coaches film with that. So it's a very quick evaluation resource. And, you know, back in the day you hear about, yeah, you know, we had these two guys spending you know countless hours throughout the week, cutting up the tape. It's now we've ex- expedited that process to a matter of seconds. So that's really the main piece there, but they also get access to just the raw data. Um, we also have another product too, our PFF IQ product, which is more of a, you know, I would say insights that are more of ours and our perspective on certain matters and also just a, an evaluation metric, and which is also kind of becoming more of a, a key, I would say resource with the transfer portal being the way it is now. Um, you know, it's, it's really exciting times just, you know, in college football and also for PFF and what we have to offer.
1: Okay. Hold on. Shane's got a follow-up and then I'm going to check in on that as well. Shane.
2: Well, I guess I just want maybe maybe it links up to the kind of the evaluation that you were just talking about. I mean, obviously, what I think PFFs, when I think of PFF at the pro football level, I think of their, you know, the the fact that they're grading every player and every single play and that we can kind of move sort of beyond the sort of kind of collective team performance metrics and evaluating individual players and actually focus on what they did on a specific play. I assume that that's happening that's one of the many things that PFF is kind of offering as well is kind of grading every single player. But I could also, or at least I suppose that there's unique challenges to grading players in college versus professional, uh, the professional football game. So I don't know if you have any, you know, could talk a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we do the same grading process. It's the same methods. And that, that's a really good point in terms of just kind of being a little bit more difficult. I wouldn't say it's more difficult to grade a college game over an NFL game, but it's a little bit more difficult to break down the why. And I always tell people, you know, the grades are not that be all end all, but I think they're the best leading indicator that we have for a, perp, you know, a single player evaluation across the game and a single game or across the season. And I always say, if you see a grade, And most of the time people are either upset or like, Oh, there's no way, you know, this, there shouldn't be that. And it's like, okay, don't feel that way. Ask yourself why, and then go find that why. And, you know, that's what I do for, you know, myself when I'm looking at these grades and at the collegiate level, it's pretty easy to kind of get fooled by the grades just because level of competition is not baked into that. And also some of the the roles and the, the, the schemes it's, it does help some players. So it's kind of, you know, getting out that fluff. And I know, yeah, Every single draft cycle, we see it. It's like, oh, this guy, you know, maybe this this uh, defensive end, he was the third highest-grade defensive end in college football, and he played for Northern Illinois. It's like, okay, that doesn't mean he's going to be a first-round pick or even a day-two pick. He may not even be drafted at all. You know, it's, you're of going to have to dig deeper into it. Um, it kind of is the same thing across positions. You look at it in the offensive line play, too. Um, you know, you'll see some of these triple-option offenses, a lot of guys, some of the highest-graded ones, and it's like, yeah, these guys are not going to be pro-prospects, though you just right. kind of have to look at the offense by design. Um so I mean it's a it's a very good point, you know. I, I don't know if it's di- more difficult to grade a game, but it's more difficult to decipher what's what's real and what's not, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and
2: is, I mean I guess this is just almost a metaphysical. Is it impossible to separate like to actually separate out scheme in this type of thing like can you know, I, I, is that like something that you feel like if you had, you know,
1: some new what's type saying, of game what's, what's an example give us make it concrete for us
2: well i i mean i guess the the, the example you're kind of talking about like where a say a quarterback or offensive lineman you 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 kind of implied an offensive lineman that may be a top graded offensive lineman because they execute uh, they they're in a scheme that's particularly tailored to them so it's almost like easy yeah. for them to execute yeah right and so is there any is there any way of kind of standardizing basically across schemes or is that just such you know such an is that an impossible
1: experience? or yeah alternatively you say you punt on context you're like buyer beware um I mean, you mm. you have to contextualize no like, and you,
2: i mean i think that's sort of what you guys are informally doing being like oh this is our third best offensive lineman but he's you know he was in this particularly fortuitous kind of scheme for performance but i, I don't know if there's any way of kind of of actually standardizing in a way where you could actually have a rankings that was almost, uh, you know, kind of uh, agnostic to scheme.
4: Yeah, most certainly. I mean, you can definitely get very nuanced with it and create, you know, I I would say just different grades that are, you know, ignoring the favorable schemes. And, you know, a lot of times that's where I kind of come in and when I'm talking about these grades, you know, one, for example, was Baylor's offensive line um, last year. They were the highest graded offensive line in college football. They were literally breaking our grading scale. That's everybody's like, are they these guys just like the best offensive line ever? And it's just like, no, let's, let's look at Jeff Grimes' <laughs> offense, right? I mean, the, the Baylor offensive coordinator, it's a very play-action-heavy offense, right? I mean, half of their pass sets, the defense is thinking it's it's an outside zone run. And so it's a little bit easier, right? You're not, It's not very, um, you know, it's not very difficult for the the offensive line. They're getting their hand held a little bit. I use that a lot, especially in college football, but... You know, you can kind of weed out those those types of concepts. You get rid of the screens, get rid of the play action, you get rid of the run pass options. You get the true drop back passing game, right? Those five to seven drop backs. You don't get those quick throws, quick game. That's all out of it. You just look at how they perform in the true pass sets, and that can kind of shine some light on offensive line play. And you can kind of do the same with you know quarterbacks in particular. I mean, we have a you know several filters there where you know it's not so much the. I mean, it's very nuanced, but you can kind of boil it down to a more nuanced. Um, description where it gives you that final ranking and kind of, you know, has the, the the weight distribution on scheme and what's really important to the grading process. But for the basics there in the ultimate database that even teams can get access to, um, you can kind of see that you can get a little bit too. on premium stats our uh, consumer uh, product that we do offer that has some of our data available there. But, you know, going back to the quarterbacks, I mean, we have a bunch of data too, that you can kind of filter out. I mean, we have, you know, a quarterback look, filter. I mean, that's one that comes to mind where you, they, we chart where the quarterback is looking at mm-hmm. the snap and you can kind of get a good sense of, you know, what the play is and one of them is a scheme because a lot of these throws, I mean, especially at the collegiate level like Ole Miss, for example, Lane Kiffin's offense. I mean, this is one that's going to be, I would say first, if not second in this metric, I haven't looked at it this year, but I'd be shocked if they weren't at the top in terms of that. You look at the quarterback look, most of the time it's scheme at the time he's snapping the ball, he knows where he is going to go. And you can see that right away because the ball's out quickly and you can get rid of those dropbacks and see, okay, when they kind of have to do a little bit of quarterbacking, how are they really performing? And even to like looking at a lot of these offenses in general, you can get a good sense for that. And it's, it's different from case to case, right? It's not just, you know, okay, let's take out this and then we'll have a good idea of how all these quarterbacks are because you know, by design, I mean, a lot of offenses are, you know, the route concepts that they integrate are, you know, very simple. And, you know, especially in the, at the collegiate level, you know, sometimes you can kind of get a highly graded throw in there that, let's say if they were in the NFL, it would have been a pick six, right? I mean, it's just because they're different from, a, a, you know, a right. athleticism perspective, it's night and day. Right. So definitely a lot that goes into it. We don't have that one metric that takes scheme and even level of competition into account, but you can definitely adjust – to it. Um, and, I, and I'm sure teams do.
1: Anthony, you mentioned a moment ago regarding these evaluation metrics that you have in the more advanced reports, the PFF IQ report. You mentioned transfer players, and this just in passing. And it strikes me that this must be a major new growth opportunity for PFF, basically, to do the collegiate scouting for the collegiate teams. It's a little bit like in the NFL. Personnel departments have two sides. They have the college side, which is what we mostly think about. But then they have a person; they have a pro side as well, usually smaller. But they're scouting players among other teams. All of a sudden, this is relevant in the college game, like super relevant in the college game. They're, they've got high school recruiting, and now they've got portals. And so it hadn't, I hadn't, it hadn't struck me before, but it must be that this is going to be a major source of intelligence for many schools, especially those that don't have the resources of an Alabama or a Texas. But how are they going to get the scouting done on all the I mean 130 FBS teams times 85 scholarship players add some FCS in there we're talking thousands. So am I right this must be a major new thing for you?
3: Oh
4: absolutely it's something that we're very excited about and you know us you know like every other FBS program they think this year's a pretty big case study because I mean you have a lot of programs that went really heavy on the portal. And looking at how these players fared going from team to team, I mean, at the NFL level, when players change teams, a lot of times it doesn't work out. I mean, sometimes it does, you know, yeah. but, you know, just kind of getting used to that different system. It takes a lot for these professional athletes at the collegiate level. I mean, these are, these are kids, right? I mean, it's, they're still learning how to play the game. And if they go from one system yeah. to the other, It's, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult. And, you know, even right now, I mean, I haven't dug deep into the numbers too much of it yet, but I'm excited to at the end of the season, but you look at some of the transfer quarterbacks that we've seen and it's like, okay, you know, the big name one, Caleb Williams, same system, right? Same coach, just a different school. Yeah. Yeah. He's having a lot of success.
1: He rode in his Lexus or whatever with, with Lincoln Riley across country. Didn't, didn't leave his hip.
4: Right. Exactly. But Some others made
1: some pretty big shifts.
4: Exactly. They went to completely different systems and you're not really performing up to expectations. So I'm kind of curious to see, you know, how, you know, compared to their previous play, how much different is it? Because typically you, you want to see progression each year, right? You never want to see a collegiate quarterback kind of take a step back in any year. You want to see that consistent growth. So I'm curious to see if we see some of that growth snapped because they were trying to get that to be, you know, you know, very hyper growth and not so much, you know, it kind of ended up in the opposite in, in end of the spectrum there. So um, it's something I'm really looking forward to, but it definitely does help. It can definitely, some of the, the tools that we do offer can see some of those gyms. And I think you look at other positions too. I think of like the Murphy twins that came from North Texas, and went to UCLA. I mean, they're, they're making a huge impact in the Bruins this year.
1: Well, that was going to, I was going to say at the team level, there are going to be a couple of examples that at least at the midway point of the season seem to be arguments for making heavy use of the portal. The two kind of poster children teams for the portal I'm guessing, would be Ole Miss and UCLA. Preseason, before the season started, people knew that Kiffin and um, Chip went in so heavy on that, and now these two teams are sitting undefeated after seven weeks. I mean, you know, it's not causality, but we don't care so much about causality when we jump to conclusions. Everyone's going to say, hey, those guys did it. Maybe that's the way to go.
4: Exactly. So I think that's where it kind of all comes back to, and you look at somebody like Jackson Barr; he's playing – Pretty well in Linkith and system. They're not really so much of a passing oriented offense. It's a step back from Matt Corral, but he's holding his own. But I think that also, you can look at the scheme I talked about on this just a minute ago. I mean, it's definitely one of the more quarterback friendly uh, offenses in college football. Um, you also look at like uh, other pieces there. You know, offensively, you know, they had Judkins come in, young running back. It was expected to be Zach Evans, the transfer from TCU. Um, and Ulysses Bentley from SMU ends up being Judkins, who's the lead back there. He's the star of the show. So, I mean, I, I think it's just a, it's an interesting dynamic there. But you look at their defense, they definitely have guys stepping up. I mean, I look at Troy Brown, who came from uh, Central Michigan, who uh, was a, a great off-ball linebacker for them. He is now the same for Ole Miss. And, um, you know, you even at the linebacker position, you look at Ivan Pace, who's been, I think, the best defensive player in college football for Cincinnati. Last year he was at Miami and Ohio. Um, And here he is. And like I said, in my opinion, he's been the best defensive player in the country. Um, It's, it's just kind of remarkable to see him step in there. So I think it's, I think it differs from position to position. Um, I look at the quarterback one as the big one where it's like, okay, you know, how easy is it to jump from offense to offense? But I look at the other positions that I think at at the the collegiate level, and this is a, I could talk about hours about this, but the collegiate level, I think the positional value it's pretty equal across the board, but oh, quarterback's still really? the main piece there.
1: Yeah. Today I think mean, it's more equal, more equal in in college than in the NFL.
4: Oh, 100 percent Yeah.
1: So you're saying, for uh, example, a five star at every position would be more equal in actual value to the team than would the equivalent of a five star in NFL. Super interesting. Okay.
4: Yeah. I mean you I mean, we all know like the running backs debate the NFL level, right? I mean, I know. Like a lot of people think PFF well, they don't think running backs matter, or whatever. Um, at the NFL level, maybe they're a little bit more replaceable and interchangeable and it's a little bit more dependent on the ecosystem that they're in, you know, the running back in rushing output. But at the collegiate level, it's different. Running backs are actually one of the more valuable players in college football what we've found. And it's more about, you know, you look at these guys and it's like, okay, um, Travis Etienne, he comes to mind because he's the one that kind of helped me recognize this a few years ago when he was at Clemson. His his exceptional years when he was younger, um, he is a difference maker, right? When he was out on the field and he was playing even guys from NC state, for example, he was quite easily the best athlete on the field. Some of those guys on that NC state defense probably aren't playing in the NFL right now. Right. And so when you're going up against a guy that, you know, this isn't to slight to guys that can't make it in the NFL, but if you're going up against some guys on defense that are going to be working a normal nine to five job in a few years, and you're going to be playing in the NFL. I mean, you're going to have a pretty significant advantage, whereas in the NFL, okay. if you're all professional Good.
1: athletes. I love, I love, I love your argument. Let's take another example. Let's just take like an inside linebacker. Let's take another low value position in the NFL and see if it goes through with college as well. So does the same argument go through? You take a the the top inside linebacker recruit in the country. You drop him into whatever Georgia or UCLA. Um, you're you're saying he's making a bigger difference in college than he than the equivalent guy would be making in the NFL.
4: Absolutely, N'Kobe Dean comes to mind. Last year, I mean, you let that entire Georgia off-ball linebacking corpse. I mean, looking at what they did, I mean, he he made some plays that were jaw dropping all throughout the season. I think just the the intelligence that he had showed, but also the athleticism, and you could see that um, you know on the field from a blitzing perspective, with you know just also the technical standpoint because a lot of these offensive linemen when they come into college football it doesn't like even five stars you plop them on in the field you're just like you're about four or five years away from actually being decent you know <laughs> and they have just so many deficiencies but for the defense it's pretty easy to pick up on those and kind of exploit those Jacoby Dean was a, an expert at that okay. and you can do that at the NFL level you can't quite do that because they're all NFL offensive linemen when you're blitzing and also from a you know a coverage perspective you can kind of bait the quarterback a little bit and also, too, like sticking with the defensive one, I think the big debate is, you know, what's more valuable, pass rush or coverage? At the NFL level, we found coverage is, can explain more on what happened on a given pass play than um, the pass rush production can. At the collegiate level, it's, it's different. Specifically at the power five level, it's a little bit more um, pass rush can explain more on a given pass play than coverage can.
5: Mm-hmm. And
4: it's just the power five level, which kind of sparked my interest when I did this study um group of five levels kind of like the nfl and when you boil it down it kind of makes sense at the power five level that's where the blue
1: chip recruits are yeah right? you right. get the these deep, the defensive the blue chip defensive guys yeah,
4: yeah and you get
5: guys.
4: yeah you get these the absolute freak shows you have these Aiden yeah, hutchinsons yeah. you have these cave on where they don't have to be refined but they're just so different athletically that they can consistently win when they're going up against these unrefined offensive linemen and also like the the quarterbacks, they also, I think, like the biggest issue that I see with quarterbacks, young quarterbacks in college football, is that their their pocket presence is horrible. I mean, it needs <laughs> developed, and that's something that comes with feel and time. And yeah. these edge rushers can take advantage of yeah. it, and then the decision making falls. So it's it's very interesting.
1: Anthony, by the way, go go look at. Quinn Ewers, who has about fifteen minutes worth of college experience so far, and tell me his pocket presence doesn't seem otherworldly already. Just go check that out. And let me know if I'm right or if I'm just a homer because we know I'm a homer, but maybe I'm right anyway. Um, <laughs> he's special. He is special. I will. Well, say just but different. look. I mean, he, everyone talks about arm talent, but go look at his pocket presence. I mean, it's I, honestly he moves in a way that I think is is certainly helpful to him. Okay, um, real quickly, follow up on what you just said. You were careful to say. What happens in the defensive backfield is more, it explains better what happens in a pass play than on the line. And then you flipped it with college, but you said, Descript, this is descriptively. What about out of sample? This is what we'd really want to know It's like, if we knew a team had, was stronger rushing, uh, rushing the passer or defending the pass ahead of time, ex ante, which would better predict their success against the pass out of sample? and the same in college and improve. Does that make sense? So it's one thing to say the breakdowns in the backfield are especially, you know, influential, but, but maybe the breakdowns in the backfield are harder to predict. And so you don't that the resource allocation question is fundamentally a predictive question. And the resource allocation question is really what we're interested in.
4: Yeah. I think even with this whole study, I know so it's like, this is something where I, you know, I mentioned uh, Dr. Eric Eager a little bit ago that I kind of, I took from him his idea. Cause he did this for the NFL and I got this idea. I was like, I kind of want to do it for college. I want I'm curious. So then yep. I, I did a similar method and I kind of found the same results. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I was talking with him about it and we're both just like, there's just so much more. I mean, we're just scratching the surface about this whole debate. Like that, yeah. this isn't even close to being settled. and I think that's where it kind of comes in there too. Okay. Um, but the general idea is something that I can get behind. Right. Because I mean, you look at the, you look at the group of five level and like this debate and that study that I did, it was different. You know, what happened in the in, yeah. uh, the secondary explained more. And it, it makes sense because you're not seeing those blue chip guys, you know. I mean, these guys that are rushing the passer at the group of five level, a lot of them are small. They have some limitations. You yeah. know, they kind of have to make up for, t- for technical prowess and a lot of them don't have it. So that, that's kind of where the whole thing kind of comes to. It's like, okay, this is something I can get behind, but we still have yeah. a lot more to
1: figure out. Cool. Listen, we're going we, to, I know I could do this for a long time and unfortunately we can't do it. I'm going to ask you some quick ones. All right. Some quick ones about teams this year. I think these are questions people reasonably have. Certainly I have um, TCU ceiling, TCU ceiling, they're undefeated. People are loving, you know, they're getting all kinds of praise. The, the models don't love them so much. They're, they're, they're fine, but they're not, you know, they're not quite up to the accolades. What do you think? T- and we're going to be quick on these. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, sh- I'm gonna. ask shorter versions. TCU's ceiling
4: this year. TCU's probably been the most surprising team to me because Max Duggan a few years ago looked like he probably shouldn't be starting at the Power 5 level, but now he's... It's, it's shy. I was talking with my guy Seth Galina because we were talking about it and we were just kind of shocked that they were doing this. So I'm still cautious. I need to see it a little bit more. So I'm going to say it's not undefeated or CFP worthy. I okay. still pick in Texas to win the Big 12.
1: Okay. Notre Dame's floor.
4: Um, I mean, I, th- I think they're winning a bowl game.
1: Okay. Okay. So we're not going to, we're not going to overreact too much. Speaking of overreaction, um, what's the appropriate reaction to Venables at OU so far appropriate reaction?
4: I think it's a little too early to get worried. Um, I was always concerned about just kind of uh his trying to take Davos Sweeney's playbook or not just not, you know actual playbook but just the way he coaches and the the way he distributes scholarships and all that and just trying to do that at Oklahoma I thought that was a little interesting but you know overall from a coaching perspective it's too early to click the panic button you look at the Texas game and it's like they didn't have Dylan Gabriel they don't have a backup quarterback you know if Dylan Gabriel plays that game it's a different game I still think Texas wins but it's a completely different game so I'd say stay calm we'll, we'll see what happens in a couple of years
1: okay a couple of years all right good okay um Who's the best team in the Pac 12? You got you got you gotta put all of next year's income on one team in a in a in a round robin. Who you got?
5: USC. They have the best quarterback.
1: Oh, really? Wow. Okay, interesting. All right. Um okay. Well, we'll see. We a, lot of, a lot it's a fun, that's a fun conference this year. More fun than it has been in a very long time. And USC could still run through the whole thing. Um. Final question. Um. Michigan, Ohio state is Ohio. We haven't, do we believe in Ohio state? The models love Ohio state. The talent loves Ohio state. Michigan's finally beginning to convince us that they're for real. What, what do you think the right line is right now for that game in Columbus in about a month?
4: I mean, I honestly think Michigan's a lot closer to Ohio state than most think. Um, I know Ohio State's the big favorite. I think it should be, again, I think it, they're a lot closer. I think this should be within a touchdown, in my opinion. So I'm taking Michigan. Um, I, I just think from you look at what they have offensively, it's pretty equal with Ohio State. So I think we're going to get an exciting game like we did last year that's going to have some playoff implications.
1: Okay. Great fun, man. All right. We got we to gotta catch you loose and go do another, another interview, but we appreciate you making time for us. Look forward to talking to you more down the road. Yeah, thank you, guys. That's Anthony Tresh. Anthony is the lead college football analyst at PFF. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Anthony, at PFF underscore Anthony. You know, that's about our millionth PFF interview, but the first time to talk to Anthony will not be the last time. Very much fun talking with Anthony. That has been three quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
1: On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wart Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter. As you guys know, fourth quarter is our traditional interview segment. At least since pandemic hit, this has been our interview segment. And we are delighted to welcome on to the show for the first time, Dr. Howard Neufeld. Dr. Neufeld is a professor of physiological plant ecology and some other things. He's at App State, especially our football fans and listeners are aware of App State over there in Western North Carolina. He's got a shirt on. They have had an exciting football team. Of course, the first few weeks of the season have been better than the more recent weeks, but my goodness, they had the attention of the world for a few weeks there. They knocked off. I'm a Longhorn um, Professor Newfeld, and so knocking off A&M is a great way to get on my good side, and I enjoyed that. Opening week game against UNC, of course, as well. And we all remember the Michigan game. So, Professor Newfeld, we are calling you to talk about leaves. We want to hear about forecasting leaves. Every now and then we dabble in non-sports issues when we feel like they involve some stats, some forecasting, some science, and might be of interest to our audience. But that doesn't have to be sports all the time. And as we roll into October, a few weeks ago, we were thinking, you know, we know there's some real science here. I mean, and we see leaf forecasts. How good are they? What goes into them? Can we kind of carry around a lay model in our heads? If we if we talk to someone who knew this stuff, could we come away with a rough model in our heads for what drives foliage? So that's where we're coming from. You appear to be an expert to us on these matters. You have a big following on Facebook, your foliage page. You've got real expertise in the biology of plants and leaves. And so we thought we'd grab you for a little bit. And we appreciate you making time for us.
5: Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
1: What, well, I, let's just start with like, what do you think we should know? And so we, we are, you know, just human beings who like, who like foliage as much as the next human beings. But we do think about things scientifically sometimes. And we do, and we think a lot about forecasting. So what do you think we should know about what pushes around the quality of the of fall foliage?
5: Sure. Um, well, the, the fall colors are really closely related to the weather and more so than climate. And that means that when people write me in in May, in April, and they say, I have to make hotel reservations because I'm going to the mountains or I'm going to New England for fall color, when should I make my hotel reservation? <laughs> I tell them right out, I can't tell you very accurately because we can't predict the weather more than about 10 days in advance. And fall color is really dependent on the local weather. So as it gets closer and closer, I get better and better.
1: <laughs> but, okay, but you're already, you're already pushing my understanding because my, and I, this understanding is too grand a word, my naive yeah. beliefs, I've always... I thought I came to believe years ago that it wasn't the most recent weather, but it was like months previous weather, like the, like the drought or the wetness and when the cold yeah. starts and things, and things like that. And so by, the, exactly. if, if by September 1, do we have a reasonable sense of what mid-October will look like, or do we need to wait even closer?
5: Well, the, the way I do it is I, I do it in increments. So the first thing I do is in August, I look at the, Three month NOAA forecast, just to get a general idea. they going to be real quickly NOAA, NOAA,
1: NOAA. Oh,
5: National Oceanographic and uh, Atmospheric Administration.
1: Mm-hmm. And
5: they put out long range weather forecasts. Now they're very general, but they'll say things like in the Southeast United States, we predict it's going to be above normal temperatures uh, for the months of September, October, and November.
0: Mm-hmm. So
5: then I have a sort of preliminary idea of what to expect. Mm-hmm. And they do the same for precipitation. Then as it gets closer, It turns out that based on some scientific studies done at the Harvard Forest, where they've been monitoring the same trees for 25 years, they showed that the uh, month of September was crucial. So trees are already queuing in on short days. But when September temperatures start to go down, that's a clear sign that the fall colors aren't far behind. And then starting about mid-September, if it gets cool and stays cool from then into October, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a good fall season and it's going to be on time. That's exactly what happened this year here in the Southern Appalachians. Mm-hmm. It got cool in September. It was like the sixth or 10th coolest fall that we've had. And then it was also very sunny. And you combine cool, sunny days or, or cool temperatures and sunny days, and you're going to get really bright colors. And they were super bright this year. So we had probably the best fall color season. Or Let me say it this way. We're having the best fall color season in many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people have said, oh, the colors are early this year. And they had made plans to come a little later. And of course, they're going to miss the peak. Actually, fall color is on time this year. If you look at the historical record, it's the other years that were late. right? Like 2019, it, we didn't reach the peak until October 28th. Right. Whereas here, we're already past peak. So Is there any see, connection
1: to 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 quality and on timeness? Does it tend to be not as good if it if it's if it's late or is that unrelated?
5: sometimes if it's cloud if there's an abundance of cloudiness, it tends to be less bright. Um, but if it's even if it's late, if there's a lot of sun and we don't get into a drought situation, you can get some bright colors. But I would generally say that later fall color seasons which is caused by warm weather are generally not as good as when they come on time
1: okay i've got to ask one follow-up sorry shane shane's trying to jump in here real quickly one follow-up you've mentioned twice now a factor that i didn't know was in the model and that is sunlight like early fall sunlight so Mm -hmm. why is it physiologically is that okay thing to say about leaves why is it what happens scientifically with the sunlight that contributes to that
5: yeah so the the three colors that people think about when they see uh, fall foliage is, of course, yellows, oranges, and then deep reds or bright reds. Uh, the yellow and the oranges are pigments that are in the leaves in the summer. They're just covered up by the green chlorophyll. So when the chlorophyll goes away, you get, they, they reveal themselves. But the interesting thing about the red pigment is it's not there in the summer. So right before the leaves fall off, they make this pigment and they use the sugars from photosynthesis to do that. So if it's cloudy and warm, um, they don't do as much photosynthesis.
1: They don't make as many of the red pigment you have dull colors. Oh. Mm. Very interesting. Very good. Thank you. I, you just said a bunch of things I had no idea about. That's awesome. shame.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and I guess maybe to follow up on that uh, and show my own ignorance, I had always assumed that these reds versus yellows versus oranges were kind of... <laughs> I mean, I, I understand weather obviously ha- has has a, a, an effect on it, but I thought it was like different types of trees, like different species of trees, are more likely to be red versus yellow versus orange, and that like kind of the vibrancy of a particular local region was more about the mixture of different tree species than it was kind of whatever local weather they'd experienced. Is that is am I totally wrong? There is it, are, are, do, oh, no. do, are are certain trees more likely to produce certain colors, and are they? therefore more sensitive like are the red trees more sensitive to these kind of you know the timing of light in september
5: yeah no you're you're correct so each species has a unique color uh that it goes that it achieves in the fall so for example dogwoods always turn deep burgundy red color red maples can turn red sugar maples can be anywhere from yellow to orange to red and birches are always yellow so on my fall color guide page on Facebook, I published a table on there, which people can go look at. It lists the trees that, uh, by their various colors. What's really interesting is that some trees appear to cue in more on day length. You know, starting in you know, June, the days start to get shorter. And dogwoods always turn color really early. The ones here in my house in, in, in the mountains of western North Carolina started turning color in August. And we definitely didn't have cold then. And then there's other species that uh, may cue a little bit in on, on day length, but they're really sensitive to temperature like the maples. So if you get a warm year, the dogwoods are going to cue in on day length and they're going to turn color no matter what. But the maples are going to be delayed. And so you start separating the species out by those that are temperature, sen- more te- temperature sensitive than those that are more daylight sensitive. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you get this kind of spreading of the fall
0: color. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I guess at the kind of macro level, like, oh, kind of a regional observance. I love the, I love fall foliage, and I, I try and enjoy it as much as possible. And kind of in the mid-Atlantic. But when I was in grad school in New England, and I feel like fall foliage up there is, 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 at least to my eye, like kind of an extra level of vibrancy. Is that more about again the mixture of kind of tree species, or is that more about them kind of having? Optimal. Even if we even agree on that, on on, on my assertion, is that more about the tree species or more about kind of the temperature, the weather conditions that's typically faced, or are they kind of convolved together?
5: Yeah, I think it's a. You might say it's a mixture of what species are growing there, and and the temperature and the light conditions. You know, fall foliage color is what we call a temperate phenomenon. Uh, you you find it in the areas that have a winter and a summer. You don't find it so much in the tropical areas. And in New England, uh, you have fewer tree species, so the colors are concentrated in fewer. They have essentially birch, beech, and maple, and those give you your bright yellows and oranges and the reds, and you get these big blotches of color, and it's absolutely spectacular. Down here in the southern Appalachians, we have 140 different tree species. That's the most of anywhere in the country.
1: Hold on. Now, real quickly, why is this? Why so much difference in number of species in different regions?
5: Well, ecologically, there's a, a biogeographical gradient in species diversity as you go from the equator north. And, and for most classes of organisms, they reach their highest diversity in the tropics, which is why the tropics are so important. So, for example, tropics constitute about the tropical rainforest areas, about 10 percent of all the land area in the globe. And they have 50 percent of all the species on Earth. Right. So as you go away from the equator, you get fewer and fewer species. Okay, And so the Southern Appalachians, because of the high topographical relief, you know, we've got all these mountains and valleys and stuff. There's a lot of ecological niches here, and we just have a lot of species. So you get like Southern species reaching Northern limits, Southern uh, northern ones reaching their Southern limits, and they all converge here. And so the Smoky Mountains and this area just have a tremendous diversity of tree species. So that mm-hmm. gives us a slightly different color palette. Ours is more orangey, yellow. But we do have our reds interspersed in there. You know, we got red maple, we have a tree called sourwood, which the locals make honey from. And uh, and, and the dogwoods, and they give it in black gum, and those give us our bright red patches along with the oaks. And so Does I like actually makes- tell people I like to tell people we have the longest fall color season in the country. Right. Because we also have the highest mountains in the east coast. So Mount Mitchell is the highest peak east of the uh, Rockies. The colors start earlier at high elevation. And then each week they work their way down. And so if you miss right. the colors at 4,000 feet, you come the next mm-hmm. week, you'll see them at 3,000 feet, then 2,000, 1,000, and then all the way to the coast. So you can watch colors here
1: for almost eight weeks. In New England, it's about two and a half weeks. That's amazing. Uh, that's a pretty good pitch for Western North Carolina. I think you're basically driving, driving interest in Boone, little, little, little. Um, Chamber of Commerce spot here, which is reasonable. Is it make forecasting harder when you've got that diverse uh, set of targets you're trying to forecast? Is it easier to forecast what's going to happen in the Northeast?
5: Uh, it, it may be. I don't, I don't personally do the, the forecast. Yankee Magazine does a good job of it and a couple other places. And um, Kyle Kotner is a um, fall foliage sort of ambassador for the National Oceanographic Administration, and he publishes a weekly update of fall colors all over the whole country, including Alaska and Hawaii. Okay. And, um, and you, can, you can do that on the fall foliage report. Um, but no, I think uh, once you know the relationship between elevation um, and uh, the timing of fall color, uh, you can predict it fairly well. Like in New England, for example, the colors will start again in the north because it's colder farther north. And then they'll work their way down and you'll have the latest colors along the coast. When I was in New Haven, Connecticut, you know, I I always thought fall colors would come in early October, but they always came at the end of October because Long Island Sound keeps that area warmer than you expect.
1: Right. So you get those kind of impacts. So, Dr. Neufeld, one factor you've not talked about much so far and I'd like to understand better. It's in my mental, lousy, messy algorithm (laughs) is rain. And uh, w- when, when is it good? When is it bad? What time of the year? How much? I mean, what's the role of rain and good foliage?
5: Yeah. Well, again, those researchers at Harvard who did the, the study of the weather effects on, on the timing of fall color showed there was actually a, a, a relatively minor effects of precipitation. As long as you don't have a severe drought, um, you know, then because if you have a severe drought, and then it starts to get short days and, and cold. Some trees will just drop their leaves before they fully develop color. Um, so, but if you have abundant precipitation, say in April or May, it doesn't have much of an effect, uh, in the fall. So when you get close to the fall though, what you want is, uh, uh, abundant precipitation so that the trees aren't droughted, but then that period from mid-September into October, you want to be primarily sunny. So this year, for example, I talked with the assistant state climatologist, Corey Davis here in North Carolina. And I said, can you tell me if it's not just my you know, uh, intuition, but was it a cooler fall this year? And was mm-hmm. it more sunny? And in both cases, um, the answer to that was yes, it was like our mm-hmm. sixth or 10th coolest fall on record. And it was one
1: of our most sunny falls. And I mm-hmm. think that's why it led to such bright colors this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the mechanisms that, that rain works through is just the daylight thing or the sunlight thing that we were talking about before. Can you just yeah. give us one level deeper explanation for, the, the, the relation between water and dropping leaves? Why is it, remember, we're idiots about plants. Why is it that <laughs> plants, they, they drop leaves differently depending on the weather conditions that they had to experience for the previous few months?
5: Yeah, so some trees are very sensitive to drought. And um, of course, the water is lost from the leaves. There's tiny pores in the leaves and water can be lost from that. They're called stomata. But those are the same pores that they take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere with. To do photosynthesis that's how they grow so it's kind of a penalty if you want to take up co2 and grow you have to lose some water mm-hmm. and if a tree is really stressed well you could close the stomata, okay because they can open and close they kind of go like this um but if that's not enough then the way for a tree to stop losing so much water is to drop its leaves you know particularly the older uh, ones that are less efficient like and a so dramatic you get premature leaf
1: drop i see now
5: in the fall though the tree, the deciduous trees, the ones that are bare in the winter, um, after they turn color, they're going to drop those leaves off because they're too delicate to survive the wind and the ice and so on that would be during the winter. And so the tree forms a layer right where the leaf is attached to the twig and cuts off the leaf from the tree so it doesn't continue to lose water through the vascular system there. And when the leaf falls off, then the tree is sealed up and it can stay dormant until next spring, and then it makes new leaves.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Okay. Understanding a little bit better as we go. Um, just as we wrap up here, Dr. Newfeld, can you tell us, this, this may not be a fair question. I, I, we didn't prepare you for this question, but we've talked about the virtues of Western North Carolina and Southern Appalachia for leaf watching. Shane has been lotting uh, New England, which is probably the poster child in the U.S. for leaf watching. Are there other corners? It strikes me that there are probably little corners of the country that people not, may not appreciate are actually quite good for this based on some of these factors that you've been talking about. Where do you think the underappreciated corners of the U.S. are for good leaf watching?
5: Well, I think some of the underappreciated areas would be the upper Midwest, you know, Michigan, for example, or Minnesota. Um, all these states, most of the states east of the Mississippi, uh, through their tourism bureaus, will tout their fall color. West Virginia has great fall color. Right. Maryland does in the Western Mountains. I grew up in right against the mountains there in Maryland. And, and Pennsylvania, of course. And, of course, the Adirondacks in New York are spectacular. So there are almost any state east of, the, of Mississippi or adjacent to it uh, will have fall color. And even out west in the Rockies, you have the Aspen clones which turn of just a tremendous golden color. Yeah. It may not be, you know, as many colors as we have in the East, but it's still spectacular. Yeah. And fall color season is the busiest tourist season for most of these states. It's a fifth of all the tourist revenue in most of the England states. And even down here in North Carolina, estimates are that in the September, October, November, fall color tourism brings $500 to $800 million to the economy of the mountains. Okay. And it's billions of dollars in, in New England. And when You add up all the states of fall color. We're talking a fall color tourism industry of somewhere around 25 to 30 billion dollars. It's mm-hmm. more than the ski industry in some states. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really economically important. A lot of mom and pop businesses probably make their annual profit this time of year. It's mm-hmm. Asheville's busiest tourist season, mm-hmm. uh, probably Boone and mm-hmm. uh, many other states. So. And the other thing I think from a philosophical point of view, it gets a lot of people out in seeing nature. Right. And if families bring their kids out or their parents out and they see these colors and they think how beautiful it is, I'm hoping it also puts into their mind, I want to preserve the environment so that my
1: children, when they go out leaf looking, they see the same thing that I do. Right. So I hope that's true. Right. Right. Terrific. Well, we're in the throes of it. Not here, not down here in Texas, but the rest of you guys could enjoy the throes <laughs> of it. Peak, peak leaves right now, and I feel like we understand it a little bit better having spent some time with you. So, Dr. Newfeld, thank you very much for being with us on the show, and visiting with us, and educating us in our simplicity, educating us on leaves and foliage.
5: Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely, Dr. Howard Newfeld, professor of physiological plant ecology plant water relations, ecosystem ecology, and air pollution effects on plants at the biology department, App State, in Boone, North Carolina. That is hard west, northerly of the west North Carolina in the mountains with some of the best color out there. All right, Shane, uh, what do you think, man? Um, By the way, he just, he talked about the beauty of the rockies i was thinking about that you were born in the canadian or raised in the canadian rockies.
2: yeah no and i mean like unfortunately like i think maybe i'm far enough north that the rockies for, uh, in my kind of area are mostly evergreens which have their own beauty to them certainly but not during, enough aspens during, during the winter months i very much been uh, enjoy watching snow on the evergreens but we don't get as much of that aspen action that you get down in colorado and you some think the you episodes.
1: come out of this conversation with a better mental model for what makes good leaf color
2: yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think so. I mean, I I was a little surprised again, like the the impact of kind of what you know, the sort of subtle effects of weather, subtle but important effects of weather. Um, it's something I didn't really, I wasn't certainly cognizant of before. So that's the, day,
1: that's the daylight stuff. Yeah, yeah photosynthesis required for the reds. That the reds are different from the oranges and the yellows. I come on, that's a whole new thing for yeah, me. Yeah, no,
2: that that is very cool. Man, it's got me hyped to head back out to the Poconos. I was just there a, a, a couple weekends ago, and I kind of want to get back after this. You gotta go, man.
1: It's going away. It's not going to stick around. All right, team. That has been another two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. Another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, Shane Jensen, who was with me for the whole thing. Many thanks to Shane. For Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner, who I think are already enjoying an early lead. If I'm following the text thread properly, for Matty Dats the boss man, Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.